I'm not saying let's not do any planning. Let's not try to make some predictions about the future. I don't think that's what you're getting at either. Yeah. Well, Ed, if you did that, you're the only one doing it, you would be unemployed, right? Because people like me, they don't want to hear that it might not work, right? <laughs> I mean, uh, <laughs> but yeah. the more you can say to me and remind me that really this is our best guess, right? And there's so much we can't control, right? That if you can have those kinds of messages and remind people of the unpredictability and seemingly the whimsical randomness of life and death and, and all those kinds of things, that's helpful. Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. If you find money to be the number one, two, or even third largest source of stress in your relationship, then you're in the right place. Going beyond how to budget, invest, and do your taxes, we're going to explore financial intimacy. Discover how to talk with your partner about your shared financial life. Let's take the awkward and painful out of money conversations. Join me and hit follow to listen to weekly inspiring, healing, and motivating interviews with financial therapists, couples therapists, and financial planners, and so many more. Let's go on the journey of financial intimacy together. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Healthy Love and Money podcast. Today, it's my distinct honor to welcome Dr. Ted Klontz to the show. Now, Dr. Klontz, I got to meet him, I think it was like eight years ago or so in Mexico at a conference. And I had read some of his books up to that point, And then I met him in person. I was like, man, this guy is so cool. He's so nice, so thoughtful. And so all these years later, it's incredible to be able to welcome him onto the show. Dr. Klontz, welcome to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. Thank you for the invitation, Ed. Appreciate being here. Absolutely. So you were telling me you've got this new theory of everything that's coming up. And we were talking about it just a little bit before I hit record. And then I realized I should have just hit record because, man, this is golden. So a theory of everything, Dr. Klontz, tell me about that. What does that mean? Well, we know what we witness in the world. And many times it's like, like, how could that possibly be true? Or you know, what's going on or whatever? And so I was actually working with a gentleman who sees the world about 180 degrees different than I do. Actually, I wasn't talking with him. I was listening to him. And uh, he sort of presented a challenge to me. He said, I've worked with a lot of people, but no one's ever listened to me. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to listen to you. So I, I literally listened to him for five days. Tell me his view of how, what it's all about, this thing that we call life. What, what is it all about? It was very difficult to listen to sometimes because it's very different than the way I've made up. And what I came to, and, and this is not my original thinking, but basically we've all made up a story about what it's all about. Yeah. What's parenting all about? What's being a human being all about? What's, what, what's it all about? And it's, we build that story over time, picking pieces of information, and we create our own little story. And any kind of conflict typically comes from either my story being destroyed by circumstances, such as I, I believe in the goodness of human beings, right? That's when I believe that they're innately good. And then somebody does something that's not good, like really not good. And it's right. like, what do, what do I do with that? Because it doesn't fit 
the schema or the story I've made up about how it worked. And so the theory of everything is we've all made up a story. And if we can't make up a story of what it's all about, we will either kill ourselves or we'll go crazy. So we have to make something up. And we all do. And uh, what we make up can not really be proven or disproven by scientific fact. And so you can tell me, you can cherry pick pieces of information that you consider to be proof. And I can, if I'm not on board, I, I can cherry pick the very same thing. And we end up arguing rather than going, oh, what, they, what they're believing, even though it makes no sense to me, is how they keep from going crazy today. That's all it is. Mm. And so if I can give them grace for their beliefs, then I'm interacting with them in a totally different way. It's like, oh, and why would I want to strip them from this thing, which is keeping them from killing themselves or going crazy? Why would I want to do that? And so the places that we can interact with people are to hear their story. And of course, when we listen to another person's perspective of how they see things, we risk being changed ourselves by their story. Sure. And there's innate protection of our story because without this story, we're going to go crazy. Right? So I'm, I'm very protective of it. And it's a way for me to begin to understand how to be with people, how to understand myself, my wife, my kids, my the colleagues and clients that I work with. It's like, I just want to hear their story. And there are always places in it. If a person feels really heard, then they actually become open to hearing you know, the, to hearing what I might say or how I might see it or whatever. Because at the end of this five days, this gentleman said, so how do you see it? And he's open now to how I see it. But for five days, he was testing me. Can you listen until I quit talking before you interrupt me, before you judge me, before you roll your eyes, before you say I've had enough, you know, uh, all that. Can you do that? You know, that it's like the, we talk about how politicized the our country is today. If you read, actually read the news reports and from the 1850s, when the struggle was around emancipation and slavery and all that, it's no different, actually. It's not any worse. And it's certainly better because we had people in Congress beating each other up, physically attacking each other, throwing them into the hospitals. You know, the I mean, it was just a, a crazy thing. So we've been doing this like forever. And I think that the spiritual people that in our world, who we look up to, the people who seem to be able to look beyond all this, they already get that. I mean, they would look at me and go, oh, this is a story Ted has made up to keep himself from going crazy or killing himself. I don't have to destroy that picture. That's it. Listeners, don't miss how profound this is it there's i mean i'm just so many things are going on inside me and dr clance the the irony is as i'm listening to you tell your story about listening to someone without interrupting them like i'm i'm wanting to chime in at all these little points and ask all these questions and like wait but ted's telling me the story that's going on inside of him let me just listen and hear what is the story that he's sharing and that the story is that we all have a story yes that story sustains us it does. And the closer a person is to us, the more important that our stories match, right? It, it's highly mm. threatening uh, if my wife doesn't agree with me. 
on, on this very basic principle. <laughs> and I understand this whole, the purpose of your podcast is about money. So every one of us in this circle, we have a different set of information or a set of beliefs that we've made up about what that is. If there's a pile of money in, in front of me, I might say, wow, opportunity. I was just talking to a gentleman this morning who would look at that pile of money and go, you know, that's the worst thing that happened to humanity. I want nothing to do with it. So we all have a different perspective. Now, the people who share what we believe, we call our friends. <laughs> right, right. If there are enough of us, then we call ourselves right. But there's another 270 degrees of people who don't believe that. And so we form political parties. We form groups based around common beliefs of the stories that we have made up about what it's all about. And that's so true, especially around money. I'm thinking, you know, very specific, like in financial planning is there's the people that are into active management investing. And then there's the people that are into in passive investing, you know, as, as two broad buckets. And they talk about the groups that both have compelling stories if you go back and forth. And then you kind of can be left, well, whose story, which story should I step into or do I have my own story? That, and that's, I was walking with a couple recently where his story was, we got to be bond investors. And her story was, we should only be in equities. And, you know, then I'm in there and the financial therapist in me is like, oh, this is interesting. Let me ask some more questions. And the financial planner in me is saying, yeah, but I actually think this third option, a diversified mutual fund portfolio would be the best thing for you guys. And you shared something before we started recording that really interesting is when we confront people in their story with something different than their story, it actually puts a wedge between us. Yeah, the research is really clear that when the effect of confrontation is a rigidifying of position because we are being, it's really scary for example, if uh, I say there is no God, like the Buddhists believe there's no God, and you believe that is the main purpose, the more I confront you, the more solid your belief system is going to be because you can't afford to let go of it. Right Now, if you've had some kind of spiritual crisis, which would suggest to you that maybe the story you've made up about God and all that may have some holes in it, and you might say to me, you seem to be sort of okay with this whole spiritual thing. How do you make it okay, what you're seeing? Now we can have a conversation, right? But we can only have that conversation to the level that you're willing to not be freaked out, right? Exactly. And for me, at least, as I hear you just describe this, and the, you use the word spiritual crisis, I'm like, oh, good. Uh, Dr. Collins gets it. It's okay for me to talk about this because, you know, like I've, this I love your theory of everything and stories. It it feels so good for me to hear that because that's been my psychological distress is, wait, things aren't working the way the story in my head says it should be working, whether it's about religion or about money or what my wife should be doing or not doing or what my little brother who's visiting, you know, that brings up a whole nother set of stories about what should be happening. And yeah, well, let's just say it doesn't go down the way that I think it should. So then my brain gets all wiggy about it. Yeah. And, and when it doesn't go down the way we think it should, very often we project the failure of that out onto other people, places, and things, as opposed to there might be something wrong with my thinking. That's our first reaction, right? Uh, can I give you an example? 
I was working with this firm that manages artists, you know, like musicians and and so on. And the founder, one of the founders of the organization was just totally frustrated with some of her clients. And she said, the goal is to save him $25 million. This was maybe 20 years ago. $25 million during their career, which has an average lifespan of seven years, from who's Ted Klontz to get me Ted Klontz to who's Ted Klontz? You know, that seven-year thing. The life cycle of a performer. Yeah. yeah. The goal is to save them $25 million, and they won't do it. I said, that may not be their idea of what success is. <laughs> Right. And she, she couldn't believe it because right? she had made up that everybody who had the possibility of making lots of money should save 25 million. So when it's all over, they could live any way they wanted to. Right. And she would go to war against those people. In fact, she called me in because she was going to fire one of these clients because they wouldn't do it. I said, how about if you listen to what their idea might be? about what they wanted, and she, it just never entered her mind. Why would I do that? Why would, what I, why would I listen so you don't lose a client, number one? And number two, you might have more of a satisfied client. Now, the people who bought into her vision of what it's all about did great. This is, you know, it's really, some gears are really clicking for me as you share this story, because I think about the field of financial planning, and when I listen to a lot of financial planners talk about they have their model. This is the way we do it. This is the way we see it. And our best clients are the ones that kind of buy into it. And we're happy to kind of just screen out the others that don't buy into our methodology. Yep. It makes it too hard for us. And that's so really what those each of the planners are doing is saying, we want you to buy into our story. And if you don't buy into our story, we don't want you. Correct. It's not quite so rude, but it, that's a fact. Well, religions do that. They're nice to you until the time of conversion. If you say no thanks, then they're not nice to you anymore. Is this? Would you say that that's a feature of of all different types of groups? Like as part of group belonging is buying into the group's story, whether it's religious group belonging or financial ideology group. Like I think about, I don't know if this is true, but like the Vogel heads, people that are all died in the wool vanguard is the vanguard's the best. Everything if you don't believe in us, well, then you're the enemy. Unfortunately, that's what we do. Instead of having the grace of saying, oh, they've made their own story that helps them stay sane and feel safe, just as I've made mine. If I can see you that way, then I have no judgment of you. Because I don't know, none of us know what it's all about. We won't know what it's all about until our mortal life ends. And then maybe we will know what it's all about, right? But none of us know, really. None of us know. So would you say that all of us are making approximations of what it's all about? Like we're, we, we're not shy to say, this is what I think it's all about. But that, just because we make claims and develop evidence to support that doesn't necessarily mean that is the ultimate what it's all about. Yeah. For me, the advantage in seeing you is that's the story you made up. You're talking to me for some reason. There's something about the story that's not quite working. It gives me an opportunity to provide other opportunities. I, I just did a funeral for a young couple who lost a baby like six weeks before she was supposed to be born. Their segment of how life is supposed to work, it, it didn't include that. Like, <laughs> that's not supposed to happen, right? Right. Oh, yeah. When it did happen, 
everybody in their life who had joined them, uh, they would say they would do platitudes like, well, you know, you know, and the platitudes work for some people some of the time, but for this couple, they didn't. And I don't know why they called me. I had just worked with this guy's company uh, a couple of times. And he said, for some reason, I think you can help us. And I don't know what it is. And I said, I, I don't know. I'm not a minister. Or, you know, I, but uh, what I can do is I can tell you how the Lakota perceived the loss of children. I can tell you what quantum physics suggests about the purpose of human beings on Earth. And that really helped them. It's like it, ma- it made their segment a little bit bigger. So they didn't have to let go of everything. But the places where there were spaces in their belief system, I was able to say, well, here's what the Lakota, here's what quantum physicists would say. Here, you know, like this is how they explain this phenomena, right? And that really helped them. And I actually did the funeral service and I had people come up saying it really helped them because they were having the same struggle. Their belief system didn't quite make sense, right? And uh, I, I brought in some of the perspectives of the Jewish culture in terms of when someone passes. And it, it just helped build a bigger box, right? And so mm. uh, ideally, at the end of our life, our box will be so big that. Everything makes sense to us. That's why I call it the theory of everything. <laughs> well, I love that. Is I think what I'm hearing, if I'm hearing you right, is we sometimes need help seeing a bigger story uh, or yeah. being invited, but not being challenged and saying, well, you shouldn't believe that. You should believe this. Correct. It's, I think if I heard you right, it's like, well, here's the way the Lakota would see it. Here's the way quantum physics folks would see it. But it's not a, you have to see it the way the Lakota folks see it. Or this is, just, these are some other ways that may help make more sense or meaning out of this loss. We all get to build our own box. And for some people, their belief system is all they need. I went to the funeral once of a guy who died. I've never been to, in such a happy place in my life. Not one tear. They were all celebrating and laughing. And, and I walked out of there going, geez, I wish. I wish my belief system allowed me to have that perspective when somebody really important to me dies, right? And it was just like, it was good. It was like, you know, like he died bearing witness to our belief system. Like he's a martyr. Like, oh my, that's what we all want to be. It's like, okay. It's like, there are parts of that that you know, my container at the time did not allow. I, I went to an indigenous funeral. And singing, and it was just this hum in the back, and I'm thinking, I want that as a part of a service for a funeral. I mean, it's like building space and uh, giving grace then to people who, you know, you're just looking at them do the very best that they can, trying to figure all this out like we all are. I wish I could say I was perfect at it. Uh, I, I keep getting challenged by it. <laughs> Well, I mean, is that, I feel like that's part of the the growth and maturity is being able to recognize that we get challenged in that, being able to work with it, tolerate the challenge of it, and then kind of expand from it. It seems like that's where so many couples get kind of bogged down is maybe they're not even aware of the idea that they both have a story playing out in their own head and they kind of cling to it as it, as if it's this absolute truth. Well, a, a really small example, I, I like the couples thing. You would think that my wife and I would be perfect financially in conversations and so on, right? 
But what she's learned is she can't use the word cash flow with me, right? Now, for her, cash flow is, is she loves it, right? For me, it's like, ah. So that's what we <laughs> okay. learn about each I think she would probably like for me to go into treatment to find out why I have a problem with cash flow, the word cash flow. But the, the point is, there's no need to do that. Just use another word, use another way of explaining. And she's found a way to do that. And uh, what we've also found out is she's not a good one to talk to me about money. Let's have a third person there who will say the same thing she wants me to know, but it's somebody else. It's not her. So those are the accommodations. Instead of trying to convert people into our way of thinking, uh, it's like, how else can we talk about this? Because we all want the same thing. You know, we all want, at the end of the day, we all want the same thing. How can we do that? Can we be creative in how we say it and show it and ask people to look at it? So you've found that it's helpful. I mean, you're a psychologist, but you're also an expert in people's psychological relationship with money. And if I heard you right, you still need outside support to talk through your financial life with your wife and what's going on there. Yeah. I mean, every relationship we have is or can be unsettling, right? At certain moments in time. So let's use God, right? There are moments when I'm unsettled about that, right? And it doesn't mean I need treatment or therapy or whatever. It's just that I'm, I'm looking for some things, right? So I don't believe that we're ever content for, you know, we might be for 10 minutes or 10 days or whatever. What the quantum physicists suggest is the universe is expanding. The universe is inside of us. We're expanding. So what was okay six months ago in terms of uh, it's not okay today. It's, and I call it growth. And I find so many people at, uh, who are just quite disturbed at themselves because they'll never, they'll, quote, never be happy. And it's like, well, the guy you were six months ago is not the guy you are now. So let's pay attention to what the guy right now is suggesting, right? And just to understand that. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. I'm honored that you spend time with me listening to these incredible interviews. I love working with individuals and couples around their financial life, integrating mental health and relational well-being. I'd love to personally invite you into my financial planning practice where I do therapy-informed financial planning, bringing together mental health, relationship health, and financial well-being. If you're thinking that's the type of help you'd like, Please see the show notes below to schedule your free 30-minute discovery call. And I'll look forward to seeing you and hearing more about your unique story and how I can best support you. Now, back to the show. It's interesting. I think about another client of mine that I was working with recently where they had he and his wife had engaged in building a, a wonderful home many, many years ago. And based on assumptions of how life was playing out at that point, and you're smiling, so I think you know where this is going, right? Is now we're meeting and life has changed and they're confronted with this reality of, we don't have the money to support this home anymore. What do we do with this home? What do we do with ourselves? And I think it, they're at that kind of precipice point of like realizing we've grown and changed. What we thought we wanted and needed is not that anymore. And how do we as a couple talk about that, acknowledge that, and then start to create as a person who's helping, how do we make that normal as opposed to abnormal? Right. Or make them feel bad or shameful for yeah, that. Like, 
the science tells us as we get older, our brains really are dedicated differently. So we go from immediate, what's right in front of us, deal with the make plans for the future. When we start reaching the 50s, we start, our brain begins becoming reflective, not projective, but reflective, right? And it oh. seems to be part of the human evolution. It's like the, the 50s were, are when the elderhood begins, right? And elderhood essentially is, is not dealing with what needs to happen now, but sort of like the big picture, sharing the, the meaning of it all and all that kind of stuff. So I, I do a lot of work with people in that transition too of, you know, I, I want to, there's something about needing to tell the story or, you know, I have the house in the mountains, but actually I, I'm having the urge to travel back to my roots. I can't do both. It's like, that's normal, right? It's, it's not abnormal. And, it, and uh, I think in our culture, I, I was caught in this for a long time, that I was mistaking growth for never being satisfied. And I was told, Ted, you will never be satisfied. I mean, look at what you've got. You'll never. And I, I saw that as some kind of uh, character defect until one day my wife says, I think it's called growth. And it's like, that's exactly, I mean, that's, I've just sort of outgrown, outgrown this thing that I've created. Right, I don't want to do it anymore. There's other things that are calling me, and this thing that I'm doing is too restrictive. It doesn't give me permission to move outside the thing. In the world of psychology, the rule of thumb is you have to have a niche, and it's like I don't have a niche. A niche, like it's too little. And uh, I was too once, narrow. Uh, I, was to guy, uh, I was talking to a guy who had seven PhDs, and his explanation is he said. Astrophysics is a discipline. So astrophysics doesn't let me think outside of astrophysics, but I'm also a medical doctor. So I can talk about anything anywhere with anybody and they, and I have credibility and they're not going to say, what do you know? You're a physicist, right? And I mean, it's just that. So that's me. And I think it's all of us. I, I think we force ourselves into niches, if you will. And if we don't have a way of allowing that niche to f expand as we expand, then uh, bad things begin to happen. We start feeling trapped and we're not very good at what we do because, you know, we have to hang a part of ourselves up at the door when we walk in the office. Oh, I knew this was going to be such a great interview. And I almost feel as if I'm in my own therapy session as I'm listening to this. I know that's not the purpose of this, this conversation, but you know, that niche, I appreciate you speaking to the niche thing because I hear that in the business community a lot and it, it can be so narrowing and, and I understand there is there is a logic to it. But when we look at it from another story point, yeah. it's confining. And that's what burnout is. Burnout is the niche is too small. We're not following our heart. We're not following this part that says... <gasps> You know, when, when I talk to people um, who are in a transition, I say, I want you to do two things and nothing else. All right. I want you to pay attention to the parts of your day where you go, wow, cool. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Second thing, pay attention to the parts of your day where you go, this is not it. Right. And your 
your subconscious will lead you towards the wow and away from the not it. You don't have to do anything else. And in fact, when you start planning too deeply, you're going to screw it up. So this is, it feels like a word of caution to the financial planner in me. And that, you know, that's that tension. I feel like you talk about niching, right? It's like, well, I, I left, I'm going to be a financial planner. It's going to teach me how money works. And then I learned how money works, air quotes, and realized I didn't know anything about how money works. I mean, yeah, I had a master's degree and a CFP, but I still, there was still a lot I didn't know. And it was really on the human side. So then I got busy and I became a therapist and I'm going to learn all this therapy stuff and this is going to be great. But over in the therapy world, it wasn't quite enough. And then, you know, it's like, how do we bring these two worlds together? Personal for me, but as people are also listening is like, yeah, we kind of grow or change. And we realize when we thought this one body of knowledge or this one set of experience was going to help us kind of get there, whatever there is. And then you realize, well, there is bigger and more complex and nuanced than I. But didn't you, didn't you find in, in that a certain excitement? Yeah. All right. That's it. I mean, that's, that's the excitement part. And I had to laugh when you said, um, I didn't know anything about how money works. The dirty little secret in all this, nobody does. (laughs) Nobody really does. They have some ideas about how it works, but the truth is, whatever the belief is, it's true some of the time for some people in some situations. That's it. Otherwise, you and I and other people who study this would be able to absolutely predict what's going to be happening six months from now. So the truth is, just between you and I, that nobody knows how money works. And a whole bunch of us pretend like we do, right? We pretend like we do. Well, and I think it's part of the expectation we put on ourselves, people put on us, is that because it creates a sense of safety for others. Well, at least this expert knows what's going on. And and then we fall into the trap of, well, I've got to know what's going on. But then pretty quickly you start to realize, I don't really know what's going on. And I, I don't know. I mean, every day that I work with my clients, I'm flabbergasted at how little I understand about what's going on, especially for them and their thought patterns and their story. And and so again, coming back to the theory of everything is just, I just try to settle in and get curious about what's their story in their head about money and let them articulate that. Yeah. Well, and I think the most important thing that we can teach people is uh, pay attention to what's going on. Because it's a moving target. The the truth is, the other part of the truth is that you and I don't can't really predict anything. You can't predict whether you're going to be alive ten seconds from now. Right? I mean, so it isn't just about money, right? We, we right, don't know anything right. about anything. I always say, if anybody really knew how to do marriages or uh, be parents, there would be one book, and we would all agree that that was absolutely right. And it would work perfectly. <laughs> and so maybe that's why there's the proliferation of books on money and marriage. And when you when you read you know ten of them, you realize, well, now I just have ten different views of marriage. And maybe there's a few areas where there seems to be some overlap between the ten, but inevitably there's still an outlier. A tenth book is going to totally disagree with everything. But I guess maybe that's where we get to the this idea of there's yeah. principles, you know. And I think it's a disservice when we say this is it. And then the person or the couple or the family don't do it. Right. Now I feel, you know, like the, there are people who say just do, they're very famous and very rich. Just do this, this, and this, and everything will be okay. Like they do this, this, and this, and things aren't okay. So 
there can't be anything wrong with the method, right? Uh, <laughs> there's got to be something wrong with you, which breeds discouragement, which breeds the you know, sort of giving up. I'm powerless. Uh, locus of control is outside of me. Uh, all those kinds of things. So it sounds like the the message in that is for people that are listening is it's okay to question the method. It may not be you that's the problem. It may actually be the method. It may be the belief system that's being taught. And there may be parts of it that are good, but other parts that are not because of your own uniqueness, your own constellation. Yeah. The, The most profound moments of professionals helping me, I have hemophilia, so... In the 80s, I went through the AIDS scare. And actually, of, a, of my cohort of men that I know who had hemophilia, I'm the only one left alive. The rest of them died of HIV, right? And I, and I was about to get married or contemplating it. I'm talking to the doctor. I said, you know, I, I don't want to bring a wife into this death process. And she sat down, actually lower than me, and she said, she took my hand. She said, I worry about this every day because I work with men like you every day. And a needle stick can end my life. And it was like, okay, so don't tell me that I could get hit by a bus tomorrow. I mean, like, I don't know. We're all just pedaling as fast as we can. This is the best information I have at this point in time. If I knew for sure, I would guarantee your returns, right? (laughs) I always say that to financial planners. You know the truth. You can't really predict what's going to happen. Otherwise, you would say to them, Give me your $10 million. And at worst case scenario, I'll give you $10 million back. I don't know of a financial planner who says, we will guarantee your investment. And the reason is, is because they don't, they can't control it. Even though they give the illusion of we can control this. Just admitting like it's really comes around to denial of our own mortality. We pretend in America that we can predict and control everything. And, and literally we can head in the right direction, but we don't know if a landslide's going to crush us under the... We can be the most careful driver in the world. I, I live in Colorado, and one of the major highways it just wiped out you know, a few days ago. And if my car would have been driving through, I mean, you know, there's, there's no prediction and guarantees. And, and so uh, I think it's okay to have people become uncomfortable or comfortable with the unpredictable. I think that's part of my job is to to not have in unpredictability be an enemy. Do you think that that's like that feels like an anecdote to uh, so much of what we try to do in financial planning is try to create as a false sense of security almost is like if we get you in the right mutual fund allocation with all the right insurance products and the right tax strategy and the right estate planning documents and the right education funding plan and we can get all of that together then you're going to be great. Then everything's going to be good. And yet, like, I mean, I'm not saying let's not do any planning. Let's not try to make some predictions about the future. I don't think that's what you're getting at either. Yeah. Well, Ed, if you did that, you're the only one doing it, you would be unemployed, right? Because people like me, they don't want to hear that it might not work, right? <laughs> I mean, uh, <laughs> but yeah. the more you can say to me and remind me that really this is our best guess right and there's so much we can't control right that if you can have those kinds of messages and remind people of the unpredictability and seemingly the whimsical randomness of life and death and and all those kinds of things 
that's helpful. Another thing I just have to say uh, is I'm sort of a, I don't know, a contrary, I guess. But there are people, consumers, or services like yours, who suggest that really what you're asking me to do is gamble, right? And the mm-hmm. response, the response from most fine, no, 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 it's it's not gambling. Let me show you the Monte Carlo of the. <laughs> so, well, Monte Carlo is the gambling thing, right? So it's not gambling, but let me show you a device that we use to predict uh, the possibilities. And, and what I would say is. It is a gamble. Life, everything is a gamble, right? You're, you're coming here, you're gambling, you're going to be able to go home. But let's talk about casinos. There are games where you have a much, maybe a five times chance of winning right. Right. than other games. Right. So this is our 10x factor. Like you're 10 times more likely to get what you're looking for than if you do nothing or you you know, you play the slot machine, right? And I'm there to teach you and show you how the game is played as much as I understand it. Yeah, right. I mean, I think that's right. That, and that is kind of the value is hopefully a good financial planner can say like, if you're setting aside arbitrary $500 a month compared to the person who's not in a, a broad-based mutual fund, will you be better off 20 years down the road? Hold Except for we can't account for person B that doesn't invest $500 ends up creating something really incredible, has a miracle payout. And, oh, well, I should have been doing that. And so, yeah, yeah, holding all else equal. Yeah. And, and to inform them as best you can, there are a lot of tools available to you. So you look at the 100 year Dow Jones average. It's like this is the general direction. Now you'll notice there are times when I, and, and uh, you're, I call that inoculation of reality. Uh, it's sort of like, you know, you can lose 16%. Now, what I always suggest, if you want to be honest, is like of your $1 million, you can lose 160000 of that based on what we're doing. You can also go up 160000 But there's a reason we don't use money because money registers in the brain, percentages don't. And so that's why, that's why, in the, yeah. And yeah, my fees are only 1%. It's like, well, how about 12000 a year or 18 <laughs> You know, like it's a, whole, it's a whole different thing, right? So there's all kinds of things. That... I love that you're highlighting that because, right, that's, you know, leaving being a full-time couples therapist where I charged a fixed hourly rate for my couples. And now, you know, with the financial planning practice, I'm very much aware that, oh, well, you know, some planners get paid on commissions. That's a private percentage, often very blind to the consumer. Then there's the, percentage of your assets under my management. And I'll just take that fee right out of your accounts. You'll never even have to write me a check. So you'll never feel it. So just bypass it. And you're probably not going to do the math on 1%. Right. A few will, right? And then there's me who's like, no, I want you to know how much you're paying for it. So I'm going to tell you, you're going to pay a minimum of $5,000 for the year. What? How much am I going to pay for this service? Yeah. Oh my God. I had a financial planner who didn't believe that. And so the next time he did a report with one of his clients, each of his kids were going to get 1% at his death. And this time he put in the money amount. And, and the guy goes, I'm not giving my kid $50 million at my death. I mean, what are you talking about? <laughs> that, was, that was 1%. 
Like that just can't happen. Why didn't you tell me before? I mean, because the human brain doesn't calculate percentages the way it does cash. It just doesn't. And unfortunately, in our business, there are people who, who take advantage of that. It's only 1%. And you could go up 15% or down 15%. I remember I, I got caught in the 2008 thing with a, a financial planner who said, you know, you're in a risk zone 16% up or down. When it turned to 32, I called him and said, so like, what, what are we doing here? And nobody knew at that moment where they could go. And he said, well, you know, like, uh, these are unusual times. And it's like, yeah, but, you know, what does that mean? You know, I've lost one third of my financial egg and this is not supposed to happen, right? And that's when that person loses credibility in everything, right? It's sort of like a betrayal. You know, now what I hope, what I hope he's saying is 16% plus or minus, some years it can be 32% either direction. I just want to let you know, are you sure you want to invest in this way? Or would you rather go 10% or 8% or whatever it is? And, but it's, it's just uh, the more we can help people see what's really going on, I think, in the long run, the better they are because they make informed decisions. And I'm with you on that. Well, this interview has been so much fun. And as we bring it to a close for today, What's one parting piece of advice, guidance, insight, maybe about your wonderful theory of everything that you'd like to share with folks? Yeah. My motto is, when I work with people, is war is not the answer, internally or externally. And uh, the biggest problem I see is the, this war we have that's ongoing. We look in the mirror. We, you know, I was talking with a woman today. She hated her tears. It's like, Okay, so let's find a way for you to see all those things as allies. Like everything that comes to us, our sadness, our greed, our happiness, our fear, our anger, you know, whatever it is, they're all external messengers trying to urge us to do something on our own behalf. And it takes a certain level of skill to be able to do that. I was uh, just in Panama and there was a 10-month-old little girl. Uh, I was doing a workshop there. And I said, has she seen herself in the mirror yet? And they said, yes, she runs up to it every time she's sitting and kisses herself, right? I said, so where did we lose that? We are taught to not like ourselves by the age of three or four. She'll be trying to straighten her hair or whatever. And I said, wouldn't it be great if adults did that? And she said, the lady said she has a friend who every day when she walks out the door, she sees herself in the mirror and throws herself a kiss. And so that's sort of the answer to everything, too, is that the more comfortable we are with ourselves, the more comfortable I can be with you, right? So that's the answer. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much for your generosity of time and thought and just for the life that you live. It's so meaningful and I'm glad our paths continue to cross. Yeah, I I love having the opportunity to share. And hopefully when my grandchildren need your help, you'll be able to listen really well to them. <laughs> if, if that happens, my life has been a success. Right? Okay. Wonderful. Thank you for inviting me. Take good care. Thank you. You too. I invite you now to stop for five or 10 minutes and reflect on what you just heard. Maybe even journal about it. 
Give yourself the time to consider what you just heard and what it means to you. By giving yourself the time to reflect and integrate what you just heard, it will help you along your journey of learning, healing, and growing towards financial intimacy in your life. Please like and follow this podcast and share with someone that would benefit from being on the journey of financial intimacy. Wishing you healthy love and money, Ed. Ed.